0: At the moment, I am obsessed with American football. I don't know why. I have, I'm working my way through every single prime TV show about American football. I've just finished the one about the Philadelphia Eagles. Philadelphia. As all Gary would say, Philadelphia, Philadelphia. E- Eagles. Go birds, go. That's the sl- that's, um, I'm becoming a fan And so I'm on to season, I think I'm on to season five of of American football. I'm trying to understand the rules. I don't think I really do, but I'm kind of enjoying it. But one of the things I've noticed through all five seasons is this. When the coach talks to his or her team or whatever sport it is, the coach does not turn up on day one of the season and say, you bunch of losers, you worms. We'll be lucky if we win a game this season. You you, you really are not committed. You can't play ball. I wish I had another team. Can't wait till season's over. We're not going to win anything this year. (laughs) Have you ever seen a coach do that for their team? They don't. They say, we can do it. And I think actually Americans have a great advantage over Europeans in that they are very, very positive. And we can... I think that's a kingdom element aspect of the nation, positivity. But they come to the team and say, we can win it. You are wonderful. You are amazing. You are brilliant in the positions that you play. We can get to the Super Bowl. We can win it. So coaches talk about what's right about the team. What's right about the team. So... The coach talks about the strengths. The coach talks about the possibilities. The the coach says, we know we can win. How do you think Jesus speaks about his church? I think Jesus speaks about his church in an even more amazingly hopeful, calling out the gold, talking about the possibilities. Jesus knows that... He's got a whole bunch of winners, overcomers, free men and women who can change the world with love and change the world by doing good to people around. He knows we can win because it's all based on something that he's already done. He's not kind of optimistic and thinking if I can just gee these people up to belief maybe we can get a couple of results. He already knows that the church wins because he already knows the end which you know in the book of Revelation it's every tribe, it's every tongue, it's every people group, it's every language gathered around the throne, myriads that can't be counted. So that's the end, he knows it and now he's working in time with a bunch of people saying I'm going to tell you that you guys can do it that I believe in you. But the church, not just our church, but the church in general, and the church has portrayed in the media and the church that, or, or people think the message of the church is to be incredibly negative. That people look at Christians and think, I don't want to be like you because you're, you're so negative. Because the church has tended to be overly sin-conscious, that the preoccupation with the church has been and with believers has been what's wrong, what needs fixing, need to try harder and being sin-conscious. If you were talking in terms of football, it would be this, it's like starting every day 2-0 down before you even get out of bed. Or 3 0 down. Or if you like tennis, it's like turning up to every tennis match and being one set down before you've even hit one ball. And that's been the mindset of believers, that's been the mindset of the church sin consciousness, always focusing on what's wrong and what's negative and what's needing fixing and what's wrong with me, and we often use language of the Lord is challenging me about this, or is challenging me about that, and our preoccupation is what's wrong, what needs fixing, and then our identity becomes, I'm a worm, I'm a sinner, I'm a failure, I can't have any confidence or boldness, because really, I'm not really very much, and then inside the believer is this kind of critical internal voice. Almost like we live with an emotional bully. You're not good enough. You haven't tried enough. God might be able to use you if you could just overcome this or that. And it's a kind of like a stabbing voice, a critical voice, and a voice that doesn't treat you well. I want to suggest to you that that is not the voice of God. That is not the voice of God. That is not a voice that's come to do you good. It's not a voice that's a counsellor from heaven or a coach from heaven that's come to boost you. I want to suggest that sin consciousness and negativity and always focusing on what's wrong is actually robbing the church of courage and confidence and boldness I think if a person is preoccupied with a sin consciousness of what's wrong it robs a person of the delight and the joy that comes from being with God that it's almost impossible to come boldly to meet with God if the preoccupation is I'm just conscious of what's wrong and negative negative. And what needs fixing. That actually, God wants us to know that He desires to be with us. That God wants us to know that we can delight in Him and He actually takes delight in us. He wants us to live free in our mindsets and free from the captivity of feeling less and feeling inadequate and feeling like a failure. That's what God wants. So that the church is the most joyful place on the planet, the most hopeful place on the planet. I think you and I know what's wrong, we just don't know what's right about us. I think people around us are pretty aware that, you know, I've got areas, we've got areas that need fixing, but they don't know actually what's amazingly right about them, that people are made in the image of God. Now, what we focus on, we give power to. Now, what fills our mind and fills our imagination and where we think all the time, that becomes the thing that we absolutely empower. It dominates us, stops us, Winning games, if you want to take that sporting analogy. What I want to say though is, you might be thinking, hey, Jamie, you know, what sin? The things we think, the things that people do, the things that people say, the things that people don't say, the things that we value that become destructive, that sin has had an extensive damage on everything that we are as humanity. And you can say actually it's true as well that when a person becomes a believer in Jesus it's not I don't know, unless your experience is different to mine. I didn't wake up next day and get everything absolutely right in thought, word, and deed. Did anybody else? And so we know that the reality is is that sin damages our humanity and affects everything about how we see ourselves, it affects how we see other people. It affects how we view our circumstances, it affects how we view God. Sin affects everything, it affects money and economics and and nations. And we know as well that we don't become a believer and become into sinless perfection. That we know there's a process in Christ of gradual transformation, metamorphosis by the renewing of our mind. But what I want to say is that God Himself is not sin conscious when He looks at the believer. Let us drop a bit. This is this is confronting a whole way that we see God and what we think God's primary concern is in our relationship with Him. So we're saying, yeah, the things that we say, the things that we think, the things that we do, the things that we don't do have spoil our humanity and that God is in a process of causing us to be gradually, bit by bit, metamorphosized and transformed to become more and more in effect like Jesus through process. But when he looks at you and relates to you, he is not thinking about what is wrong with you. You don't believe me, do you? <laughs> that when Jesus, the bridegroom, looks at his bride, he sees what's wonderful about her that God is not double-minded about you. He doesn't wake up because he doesn't sleep, he lives out of time, but he doesn't one day look at you and say, wonderful, beautiful, amazing. Look at his or her behaviour this week. I can't wait to bless that person and do them good because Wow, they've been behaving so wonderfully. And then the next day, look at you and say, worm, sinner, there's so much to fix with you. I'm just about had it with you. I'm losing my patience. You're about to experience the mighty smiter. Don't expect anything good today. He's not double-minded about you. He sees you in Christ, but he sees you. It's not like he's hidden you in Jesus, but he doesn't want to get a look of you. (laughs) Like if I saw Jamie, (sighs) yeah, if I saw the worm, the sinner, I'd be overwhelmed with the desire to smite him, to punish him to condemn him. But as long as he can keep himself in Christ, and I don't get a look at him, we're all okay. But yeah, he sees you. Cuz Christ gives you his righteousness, That's his right. perfection as a gift. Right. So that when he looks at you, he sees you righteous. He's, Christ is in you and you are in Christ. So he sees what's amazing about you. And so what is God doing then? He's renewing and we're cooperating in renewing our minds and rewiring our thinking so that instead of being sin conscious, we're fully persuaded and convinced of how God sees how God reasons, how God speaks about us and about the church. I think that there's a confusion in the believer of believing that the inner critic, the emotional bully that stabs and the voice that doesn't treat you well and the voice that robs you of identity courage... And boldness, there's a confusion in the believer believing that that is the voice of the coach coming to help you. Hmm. It's not. It's not. Revelation says that the accuser, which is another word for the devil, comes to accuse and to stab and to point out what's wrong. And he does that seven days a week, 24 hours a, a day. The beloved Jesus comes to confirm and affirm who you are in him. He doesn't come to negate, he doesn't come to be negative, he doesn't come to be critical. There is no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ, That's what Romans 8 says. And so, quoting the guy Graham Cook, who did the prophetic word. Let's get our head around this because this might bring up some doubts in us. He doesn't have a negative thought about you and he doesn't have a negative thing to say to you. He doesn't have a negative thought about you. And he doesn't have a negative thing to say to you. How many is that is making you think, oh, that can't be true. You, you don't know me. I'm an expert on me. I've got a negative thing or two to say to me. <laughs> This is really crucial and critical that we get this because a negative mindset and a sin conscious mindset is robbed of the courage and the boldness to represent Jesus in the world in love and love that's backed up with power. Because people who are conscious of their sin don't act in boldness and courage. They're conscious of what disqualifies them rather than the qualification that Jesus has given. So let's back this up with some Bible, okay? Romans 6, verse 6. So... Before someone becomes a believer in Jesus, what are they? Are they alive or are they dead spiritually? So, before becoming a Christian, a person inside, although can do great things and amazing loving things and incredible gracious things, the Bible says, actually we were dead. And then it says in Romans 6:6, for we know that our old self, now our old self was dead to God, dead to wanting to please God, dead to wanting to honour God, dead to wanting to obey God. If you want a picture of it, it's a picture of a puppet on strings and the the puppet master, Sin, controls the puppet and, and the puppet just goes where the puppet master says. Something happened dramatically at Calvary. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. Verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the key. This is your identity, believer. You're a Christian here this morning. This is who you are. Verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The old is gone and the new has come. You're a new creation, So God is not dealing with your old man. That's why he has no negative thought about you and nothing negative to say to you because God is not about trying to make up a corpse and make the corpse look more presentable to him. The the old man is dead. The old man in Christ is buried. The old man is gone. So when he speaks to you, he speaks to the new creation the new identity and the new life. And so what he's trying to do all the time and what we're doing is renewing our minds with our new status and our new identity. God is not speaking to the dead. It'd be silly to address a corpse. Galatians 2:20. So, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, so the inner person, the old has gone and the new has come, but I don't know if you noticed that on the day you became a... A believer you didn't get a brand new body yeah you would you but with a new nature so the, uh, the Paul who wrote this part is saying the life I now live in the body because I'm still living in the old physical body I've got this brand new reality on the inside I'm a new creation the old has gone the new has come but I'm living in this old body in this body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then going right into the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. So you understand that in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the the, the, the bit before Jesus, that there were lots of rules to keep. The Ten Commandments. And there were other things that people established and that people couldn't keep the rules. That as much as people tried to obey God and please God and do what was right in their words, actions and deeds, they couldn't do it. Because the old was pointing to the new, where God would do something in the hearts of men and women so that it wouldn't be something external to them to obey, that God would do a supernatural internal work so that people's delight would be to do what God loves, that people's (coughs) delight would be obedience and loving God and loving his ways. So... Pointing to that, Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone, that hard heart that kind of grated at the idea of obeying God and that hard heart that didn't want to love God or or walk with God or delight in God or desire to be with God. He's saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove that heart of stone and And give you a heart of flesh, in other words a soft heart that loves and delights and desires to be with God and obey God and find all joy and life and liberty in a relationship with God. And that's what happens in the moment a person becomes a Christian. A Christian is not a person who just has a more superior moral compass or guidebook. The Christian is not just a person who's able to regulate their behavior more satisfactorily than other people. In fact, there are a lot of non-believers who are more radical and sacrificial and giving than many and most Christians. Okay? Okay. Something supernatural and glorious happens in the new birth in coming to Jesus. It's not that a person said, I don't know what to do on a Sunday, so I go to church now. It's that I've experienced a revolution of new birth. The old has gone, the new has come. I used to be a marionette controlled by sin. Now I've got choices of what I do with my eyes and my hands and my legs and my mind and my words. I've got choices now. Does it mean that you get it perfectly right all the time? No. But there's a process and a journey of maturity that happens over time. Are we, are we getting convinced? Yes. We're getting convinced that God doesn't have a negative thing to say about you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore... If anyone is in Christ the new creation has come the old is gone the new is here so God is all the time talking to the new creation he's talking to the new man the new woman the resurrected person he's not addressing the corpse he's not exhuming the corpse every day out of the grave to say hey Dress up the corpse to be more pleasing, please. (laughs) He resurrects people because people were dead in their sins and needed a supernatural invasion of Holy Spirit power to bring them from death into spiritual life. Something that a person cannot do for themselves, initiate for themselves or bring about for themselves. They must have the activity of the Spirit working on them to bring a resurrection, because you can't resurrect yourself by degrees. (laughs) A little bit more alive today than I was. No, you were dead. Now you're alive. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5. Right, starting first one because it's great. As for you you can put yourself there. As for you Jamie, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, you too Jamie, you lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of your flesh, and otherwise doing what you wanted, saying what you wanted, going where you wanted, valuing what you wanted. And you just followed all those desires that were part of that natural old man and those old thoughts. Just adding my own... You can do that when you read the Bible. Just talk it to yourself. Like the rest, you were by nature deserving wrath. That's what I deserve. That's what we deserve. It's not that he's... Swept it all under the carpet and said, "You know what?" In the Old Testament, I was ticked off by sin, but but then I woke up in the new, and I just so relaxed now. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, I'm just with everything. I love it all. I'm just so happy. Sweep it all under the carpet. Just put a new screensaver on the computer. I don't really mind what's on the hard drive. No, he says, actually, you were deserving of. God's anger. I, I love the wrath of God because I love the fact that the things that we hate as human beings, that he's longing for justice and righteousness and that, that, that stirs something in him, not kind of apathy, but it moves him when he sees injustice and unkindness and discrimination and violence and murder. He's moved with a holy indignation And it says, but because of his great love for you, for me, God, who is rich in mercy, did what? Did what? He made you. He made the believer. He made us alive with Christ. Wow. Even when what? I was trying really hard to get it. (laughs) Modifying myself. No, when you were dead in your transgressions, it, it was by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Listen, something phenomenal happened 2,000 years on the cross. And it's not just about a few believers who believe it happened. Historians know that there was a man called Jesus. Secular Jewish historians talk about a man who went around doing good. There is a historical Jesus. He died on a cross and then he rose again. And when he died, something cosmic and life-transforming that splits the whole of history into before the moment and to after the moment happened. That in that moment when he died, he, he marries in perfect unity, wrath and mercy, so that I, you, who absolutely deserved wrath and punishment and condemnation for the things we think and the things we value and the things we don't do and the things we do, get all poured out on Jesus in that moment. And then Jesus says, it is finished. It has to really mean that. Because if you wake up every morning 2 nil down, sin conscious about, I'm a worm, I'm a sinner, he must be still angry, then basically you're saying to Jesus, you didn't do a good enough job. <laughs> yes. you, you're basically saying to Jesus, liar, pants on fire, <laughs> nothing's finished here. Now it says that, that the curtain in the temple ripped from top to bottom, why? Why? Because the temple was the place where you met God. priest, once a year, went in to offer an offering for the sins of the people. He's saying, look, I'm breaking it open because now you become the temple. Do you think the Holy Spirit wants to live in a grotty temple? Don't you think he might have done something about clearing the temple up so that he could make his home in there? He's holy. He's perfect. He's without blemish. That's why he's really comfortable in the believer. Because we're righteous, glorious, and holy in Christ. Amen. Okay? So, are, are we getting convinced? Yes. We're getting convinced, all right? So, everything God says to you is to put a smile on your face. Everything. Because the Bible says it's His kindness that leads us to repentance and to change our mind. That even when he confronts us and convicts us and points out areas where he wants to work and bring transformation, yeah, he's got a true. smile on his face. Yes. Right. Because he's talking to the new man, the new woman, the new creation. Hallelujah. The old is gone, the new has come. So good. It's like a baby can't do anything and one day it turns onto its belly and does a flip how many of you have videoed that moment hoping you can grab that moment the baby flipped (laughs) no one looks at the baby turning over and says baby's not running can't be my child we've got footballers in my family you celebrate the moment baby stood up baby took two steps you celebrate everything in the in the process of going from babyhood to adulthood to grown up. All along, it gets celebrated and rejoiced in. Hey, look! She just she just moved in faith. She believed. Wow! Really didn't took a t- didn't struggle with that for a while. But there's some there's a celebration and a joy in the process. So even when he confronts, there's resurrection and freedom in his voice. If it's a voice that just stabs you and makes you feel less and you feel rotten, that is not the voice of God. His voice is loving, it's tender and it's very, very, very specific. And it comes with batteries included. In other words, it comes with the power to obey what it commands and what it points out. It's so what grace is, is activational words. So his word can come and transform us so that when God speaks, it leaves us motivated. It leaves us full of power. It doesn't leave us demotivated. It doesn't leave us despairing and it doesn't leave us heavy. It's just his word comes to us and says, hey, there's a better way. Yes. Amen. Hey, there's a better way to think about that. There's a better way to speak about that. There's a better way to approach that. But let me just say this. It, it doesn't mean that everything initially feels really easy when he speaks. I mean, Jesus is fully man, fully God. He's in Gethsemane, the garden, before he's about to go to the cross. And it says that he was sweating drops of blood because of the distress and the stress of obedience to the Father. He says, can you take this away from me? And then through prayer and a willingness and an obedience, he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Then Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. So sometimes obedience looks like sweating blood. Sometimes it looks like agony and sometimes it looks painful. But it's always because there's a better way and it's always because there's joy on the other side. So God is not all the time sin conscious. He's not all the time saying don't, 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 don't. He's all the time saying don't because I'm inviting you into the joy, the liberty and the freedom and the extravagance of the kingdom. So when God is talking about fear, he's not trying to talk you out of being fearful. He's trying to talk you into knowing there's perfect love because perfect love casts out all fear. So his focus is on, I want them to know they're perfectly loved. I want them to know they're in my hands. I want them to know I've got them covered. I want them to know I'm for them. I want them to know I work it all together for good. I want them to know that I'll never abandon them. I want them to know I'm going to lead them through to quiet waters and and refreshing. I want them to know that when they're in the valley of the shadow of death, they're to fear no evil because I'm with them and I'm going to comfort them and I'm going to protect them. And I want them to know that I'm leading them through because I'm going to put a feast for them in front of their enemies. I want them to know that goodness and mercy is following them all the days of their life. That's where his energy is when he's talking to a person who's riddled with fear and anxiety. And so when he's talking to the anxious, he's saying, hey, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition. Give me your requests. Give them to me. Give them to me. Put your focus on that, because the shalom and the wholeness of God is going to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So his focus is not saying, oh, you anxious person. I can't do anything with you. You're so anxious all the time. And I want you to be courage and bold, but you're so anxious. What happens then? We're dominated by our disqualification. We're dominated by the accusation. And we're dominated by the thing that's stealing our confidence, which is, I'm just an anxious person. Now, he wants to exchange anxiousness for perfect peace. That's where his attention is. He wants to talk you into seeing yourself as he sees you. He doesn't want the believer just to be on a treadmill, like a, doing my best, and it always feels just out of reach. Or you've heard of behavior modification where you find what's wrong with you, and then you go to work really hard on changing it. He doesn't want that. He wants us to know that you don't have the power to change yourself. He wants you to know that if you could change yourself through your own efforts, then Jesus honestly died for absolutely nothing. There's no point of God becoming flesh Obeying the Father for thirty-three years, saying no to sin and yes to God at every single temptation, tempt- tempted just like we are, dying the most gr- gruesome, brutal form of execution humanity's ever come up with. There's no point of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus if we could change ourselves by just working a little harder. Okay. Everything of the Old Testament was to point out. You can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you need a saviour. And so all of his focus is, I want them to know who they are. I want them to know about their new identity in Christ. I want them to know that they are the beloved. I want them to know that I'm for them. I want them to know that they are absolutely clean and righteous in my sight. land this then Christianity is ultimately about the joy and the pleasure of a relationship with God that is absolutely astonishing the a, a communion with the creator who knows you perfectly and loves you entirely and is absolutely for you and celebrates you and has nothing but good things to say to you. He wants us to be so in love with him that actually we have very little appetite for other things. He gives us all things to enjoy and we enjoy all things, but he wants us to be so in love with what's astonishing that we don't really have an appetite for sin. God is about compelling us to move away from certain things because he's inviting us into something that's wonderful majestic, astonishing, and amazing. That's what he's doing in these days. He's not going to do it any other way. That's how he's going to love the world through a bunch of people who really know who they actually are. That he said in that prophetic word that a church that's just obsessed with what's wrong, sin consciousness, negativity, won't inherit what God wants to do here. He's actually looking for a people who say, you know what, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to believe that he absolutely loves me. I'm going to believe that I'm qualified. I'm going to believe that I can have courage and confidence because I know he'll back me up because he's not double-minded about me. He's not going to back me up one day when I perform well and leave me hanging another day when I don't perform so well. He absolutely is for me.